Affordable housing is a basic human right, and to build a better Kentucky where all our people can thrive, safe and reliable housing is absolutely essential. I wanted to be better and meet those goals, and it wouldn't have been possible without Kentucky housing. Knowing that I had a roof over my head, um, food to eat, knowing that I didn't have to want for anything, um, that's a that's a big plus. Being a single parent and not having to worry about um, you know housing, uh, paying bills while you know being in school. But I am here to tell you that there's a lot of beauty in this part of the county. Bringing it home with KHC. All right, well, welcome back to another installment of Bringing It Home with KHC, the best podcast in the Commonwealth for housing-related topics. I'm Molly Tate, and I'm joined today by Steve Morrow, Nathan Hall, and Nicaea Patterson in Hazard, Kentucky. We're speaking with Scott McReynolds of Housing Development Alliance and Seth Long of Homes, Inc. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Good to be here. You are probably two of the hardest working men in the Commonwealth. I'm truly amazed by everything you guys are doing to house Kentuckians. We were just up the road today, and we saw um, two of your crews, Scott, and they said that they are building two houses within a week, that you guys had a group come out of uh, 13 to 18-year-olds yeah. and from Maryland, and they're helping to build two houses in a week. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, it's part of the house raising challenge we do. Um, and to be honest, it's, we, we frame them and drive them in. We don't actually, uh, it's not a complete build, but it's still, it's, it's what's normally two to three weeks of work that happens in a week. So it's pretty cool. So anyway, how did you both get into housing development? Um, actually, I think we have pretty similar stories. I came to the area, I'd worked for a nonprofit that did home repair using uh, church groups and a couple of summers and I didn't get a, uh, I graduated, finished my graduate degree and I didn't get the job I thought I was going to land. And, um, and so I offered to volunteer with them in the off season. And so I came here in 92, thought I'd be in the area for about six months. Um, they actually told me when I first showed up, they had a couple of job openings and they're like, hey, you know, you're not really qualified for these. And I'm like, I don't want a job. I'm here for six months. Um, six months later, they said, you're doing both of them jobs, so we ought to pay you for one. And I said, that sounds great. And I stuck with around with them for a couple of years. And then uh, the opportunity, the Housing Development Alliance was just getting started. And um, I, I knew some of the folks involved in it and uh, it just seemed like a great opportunity. And so I jumped um, to the, this organization and I've been here since, uh, that was in 94. And where did you come from? Uh, from the Atlanta area. So I came uh, to Eastern Kentucky, to Letcher County in 1991 with my wife for a summer. And we never left. We're still here. We raised our family here. We're from uh, Pennsylvania, partway between um, Philadelphia and Harrisburg is where I grew up. Uh, but we came down and um, during the summer, at the end of the summer, uh, Holmes offered me a volunteer position. Um, and I, I did that for four years and then they started paying me for what I did. And I've been there ever since. Um, but if you want to know the rest of the story, <laughs> I think Scott and I go back just a bit longer than that to 1987, where we are pretty sure that we worked on the same house on a Jimmy Carter <laughs> work project in Atlanta. So we've kind of put that together and kind of, we're old and it's hard <laughs> to remember back that far, but we kind of remember working together maybe on one of yeah. the fields there. So that's kind of pretty cool. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. So what is it about Eastern Kentucky that keeps people here? Because when we interviewed Dave Prayer, he said something similar. He came to Vansburg and just never left. Yes. So, um, I think I think everybody's story may be a bit different, but just for me, um, having a sense of purpose, you know, I, I was in the building trades. I was interested in uh, work for a custom home builder in, in Southeast Pennsylvania. And um, there was something about maybe the excesses of the building and all the all the money that was poured into some of these homes. And I remembered a mission trip when I took when I was in high school. Uh, of, of helping a family get a first-time bathroom and maybe just a sense of purpose and calling of wanting to help people with what I knew how to do kind of has been one of the one of the motivators to keep me here during these many years yeah and again a lot of similarities um, 
So I'm, I grew up in Atlanta, but my parents were both from East Tennessee with even distant, more distant roots in uh, southwestern Virginia. So in some ways, this felt very much like home. Um, but I worked construction not as a job, I mean, not as a career, but as, you know, a summer job to help pay for school. Um, put six fireplaces in one house, which might be a bit much. And uh, so to, to come somewhere and to have some skills that you could put to use and, and see it really make a difference, um, you know, and it just, like I say, it, it seemed like home. And um, uh, over the years, sometimes I, I think I've described it as almost like getting stuck here when I'm having a bad day. But most days it's the direct result of, of choices that you made, um, that this is a good place to live. There's lots to do. Um, outdoors it's a good place to raise a family um and and this the the people the 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 community that's here um is really unique i think mm -hmm. and i should say that um scott your that housing develop alliance is located here in hazard and seth holmes is located in whitesburg is that correct in Letcher county yes in Letcher county. and um so last year in july this area was um, rocked by historic flooding, displacing thousands of Eastern Kentuckians. So can you tell us a little bit about what you remember at that time as residents here, as people in the home building industry, what do you remember about July 27th and 28th? When it first began, when you first, you know, began formulating response, what were your initial thoughts? So I, I remember very distinctly that morning I saw a video the other day, um, and it, it hit me uh, when I watched the video. It was of the morning of the flood, and what hit me really was the sound of rushing water. And I really haven't thought about that much since that morning, but it all came back. It was it was quite stunning to me uh, to hear that again, and and to be impacted by it because events like this um, for us split time in two. I, I call it pre-flood and post-flood. Since the flood, everything's been so much different. We'll talk more about that. But that morning, what I remember is my son waking me up before daylight saying, Dad, I don't think I should go to work today. The water's up. I said, well, really? What do you mean? You know, get to work. <laughs> and he said, no, it's it's coming over the culvert. And, and when he said that, I was like, really? I never saw water over this particular area. I said, Let, let's go out and check it out. And when I went out in my night clothes, <laughs> pair of shorts and a t-shirt and a rain jacket uh, with a flashlight, I was stunned by just what I saw outside my door and, uh, you know, hollered for uh, the keys to the tractor and whatnot. And we started trying to preserve our own home. Uh, immediately, if you're in harm's way, it was about protecting life and property. So that's where it started for us that morning. And as the sun came up that morning, it became really apparent that this was something that we had never seen before. And it seems like so many of the stories that we heard that day or I hear or I have experienced myself is it starts with your home, your people, and it goes to your neighbor and then the next neighbor. And the floodwaters don't let you get to your next neighbor. So when they start receding, you get to your next neighbor. So that's that's how the day started. And the whole day was like that. We live in a holler, um, one way in, one way out. And we couldn't get out that day um, because of the flood water. So it was just kind of a day of checking on neighbors, moving debris, helping people all day long. That's, that's how my day started. So the first thing I really noticed, I think, was... Um, Late on the 27th, I went out to get the dogs in the house. And uh, I live up on the hill, so we weren't uh, directly impacted in, in the same way Seth was. Um, but I noticed water was running in places. It had been raining for a while, but that it normally doesn't run. And I assumed that, like, the ditch behind my house was stopped up or something. And um, didn't think that much about it. And about 2 o'clock in the morning, got woken up by torrential rainfall. Um, just not, not so much thunder and lightning, but just it, like rain like we've never seen. In fact, um, I don't know if this passed over our house, but a couple of miles from where I live, there was a rain gauge that measured 1.4 inches of rain in 15 minutes. Mm. 
Um, so this unbelievable, and then the lights went out. So I picked, went downstairs and got my phone to check the radar to see what was going on. And that's when I began to pick up posts on Facebook and some other, um, some alerts that like 28, which is a, um, road in a Creek called, um, Grapevine Creek. That's not, again, it's a couple miles from my house. There was a lot of serious flash flooding, um, and so, but of course, we had no power, so we didn't have Wi-Fi. So you're kind of standing in the one spot in the house that you can get Wi-Fi signal, and it still take 15 minutes for a post. To, so it was kind of it was a very long night trying to figure out what was going on. Um, and even though I knew our house was safe from flooding, I do have a very long driveway that gets washed out. And uh, my wife and kids were actually supposed to go see my mother-in-law the next morning. So first thing at daybreak, I went out, and you know the. Um, it, it was immediately obvious, the rushing sound, the water, um, our driveway wasn't passable. And I got down to the main road and talked to somebody and realized that we were actually flooded in in Krypton, the little community I live in. There's three ways in and out and they were all blocked. Um, and so at that point we start, you know, I got on the phone to some of the other folks to try to figure out how bad it was. Um, and it was bad. <laughs> Yeah, that leads us next to the organizational perspective. I know that you said, Seth, that you know you were looking at yourself from your home and then your neighbors mm -hmm. and then slowly mm -hmm. moving out. So when did you start to begin to formulate an organizational response? Like, did you start to look at people who are housed in the FEMA trailers or did you just start looking at your neighbors? What did you do? What did you guys do first? Yeah, so the comms were down. That, that made it tough, you know, but I wanted to check to make sure everyone on our staff was okay. Um, eventually, we were able to do that through text, establish some kind of communication. Everybody at homes was safe. Um, and then um, my next thought was, um, we got to get everybody back to work because we don't need a disaster on as a disaster. You know, a lot of families depend week to week on their paycheck and they can't be at work too long. So what do we do? How do you do that? We, at the time of the flood, had 50 rental units. And my first establishment of order was, okay, let's put a team together and actually physically visit each one of these rental units and check on the families and the properties and to do a quick assessment of, of these properties. Um, and when we did that, we did that within three days or like the next Monday and Tuesday of the following week. Um, it turned out that 18 of those 50 rental houses were indeed flooded. Um, one of the families had to leave because the water came up above the first floor and we had to get them into a, another vacant rental unit. So our first line of attack with the reasoning of these rental families that have been impacted by the flood, we don't want them to be displaced by mold and mildew growth that happens quickly. So that's going to be our first order of business. Uh, mucking out those so those families don't get displaced and add to the crisis that seems to be pretty apparent at hand at early on at that time because we really didn't know we knew it was bad we didn't know how bad yeah. we're still gathered so much we didn't know that makes sense so even if their house was still on its foundation if it was Gosh, there just seemed like there were a so lot, many challenges. Yeah, yeah, a lot of the flooding, um, I don't know how should, but just a lot of the flooding on those rental houses affected from the floor joists down, which impacts your HVAC units, you know, your insulation, uh, your vapor barriers, all that has to be dealt with. If you don't deal with that, the moisture dried out, um, you're going to have problems. So. Um, you know, our experience, I think, was a little bit different in homes because Oddly enough, Hazard, despite being kind of geographically centered in the flood area, um, was Hazard proper was largely spared um, any sort of major, I mean, like devastating flood. Like Whitesburg, how many feet were you above your flood level? Um, it, it crested 24 uh, feet. Yeah, and that's the highest ever. Ever. The 57 yeah. flood was 14.6 feet. That's yeah. a previous record. And, but here in Hazard, we had what was considered a major flood, but it wasn't anywhere close to the historic record. And that's just because a lot of our water comes from southern Perry County, and that particular area didn't get the, the, the just the concentration of rain. Um, and so we didn't suffer the kind of asset damage to like our rental properties. 
Um, but so I was stranded in. And so one of my first calls was to our construction supervisor. His wife actually works at the courthouse. And so he has, he gets a lot of, he's one of the first people to hear. And, you know, he, he and I talked and he was able to communicate to me that this was really, really major event. Um, you know, and, and we told everybody to stay home that day. We did the same sort of, have you heard from, we go down the list and, and texting was really the best form of communication. Mm -hmm. And we were able to confirm that, that fortunately we had a few people impacted, but no major, um, well, they probably, no, no, no loss of life or, or loss of home, but some pretty, pretty major impacts, but still, um, and then I think what I realized almost immediately was that we, what we normally do, we couldn't do. Um, because bridges were out all across the county, uh, roads were out, power was out everywhere, water was out most of the county. So pretty much everything you need to build a house wasn't there. Um, and so that was kind of my first thought was, okay, what we normally do, we can't do. So we got to figure out, um, and, and that posed a really interesting problem that I'm sure Seth had as well, which is, um, you know, we both had grant money from KHC and um, other and some other programs to build houses and to repair houses, but I didn't have any funding for flood relief. Um, and, you know, we both actually build the houses as an organization. And so you earn some, not only a developer fee, but some, you know, your part of your operating money comes so we have this double whammy of the community having this huge need that we have no money for and what normally pays our bills isn't going to happen it, as it, 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 for at least a couple of months. We, we, we had no billable services. Yeah. Relief work yeah. is not billable. Who do you yeah. bill when you muck out somebody's house? Um, so that was a dilemma. Yeah, for and us. yet we knew people needed their job more than ever. Yep. Um, and so we were really fortunate. Um, we reached out to, I mean, I sat on my deck because I could get cell service there and talked to a couple of funders and got enough money um, that I felt like, you know, we had a couple of weeks of operating money and we just shifted from what we were going to do to doing flood relief um, kind of immediately. That was, um, and we were fortunate. And then um, you know, then we started getting on like, KHC came through with some uh, funding they had of it, could make available to help operate. We had another foundation come through and then, um, you know, we were really just fortunate that that kind of snowballed and we were able to through grants and fundraising and just random donations. I mean, one of the craziest things we had everything from a church in Southern Alabama, Pentecostal church in Southern Alabama, I have no idea how they found out. They sent us $500 for flood relief. Um, all the way to, the, um, we had a drag show in Lexington as a fundraiser that got put on by some folks from Hazard who knew Hazard was hurting. And they, so I mean, it's the complete spectrum of, of folks that just really uh, supported the relief effort. Yeah, for, for us, going back to the earliest of the early times, immediately after the event, floods bring chaos. There's nothing but chaos. And I think that chaos followed the flood for the first eight months. Mm -hmm. in, in, the, in some way or another, there were things we did not know. And it's hard to make a plan for things you do not know or you do not plan. Um, so um, I think one of the differences between then and now, uh, right after the flood and where we're at today, that was all relief. That was addressing immediate relief and you address those needs as they come up and you don't you don't charge anybody for that so um, I think in a lot of ways we're very fortunate to have been established mm -hmm. uh, to have a work history uh, to be a viable organization that was in a community at ground zero in the time when the disaster hit um, but we also quickly recognized that we could have done nothing apart from the generosity of other foundations, um, supporters, and individuals that, that helped our organizations. It allowed us to, to make a, a deep impacts. But I think it's also a good lesson, you know, KHC has helped over the years. Um, these organizations that are doing what we are doing uh, to have capacity and to be able to be um, strong, not not weak. And I know that one particular funder that I talked with said, Seth, we, we, we don't 
need this to be a time that you get weakened and go under because it could happen really quick. We want you to come out the other side of this stronger than you were at the beginning. And um, that was a lot of encouragement um, because the days were pretty dark. We couldn't find our way. We didn't know in the midst of the chaos which way it was going to go. But statements like that, financial support, um, went a long, long ways. And I think it's a good model mm-hmm. for for KHC and for other, you know, of the bigger funders to think about other key nonprofits and regions that could be leaned on in times of emergency and disaster like this. So maybe we'll learn something on the other side of the whole, whole event. Yeah, and, and I have this distinct memory. So, you know, we've, we've had disasters before in the area, floods, windstorms, ice storms. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things we had kind of, we thought we knew is that we weren't really good at recovery. Because recovery is labor intensive, and um, you know, although we use volunteers, most of our labor is skilled professional carpenter labor, and you really don't want to be paying skilled uh, professional carpenter labor to muck out houses. I mean, it just unless you have some source of funding, um, and, and so you know, kind of my initial thought process. I mean, one of the interesting things I did a lot of mud shoveling. Uh, my driveway and it gives you a lot of time to think and and one of my initial thoughts was well we'll focus on repair and and rehab and rebuilding when the time comes but then I started thinking you know we have um, things like we have trucks we have people who know how to work we have relationships with people who have equipment we have dump trailers we had all of these resources that the community really needed and so that was you know we had to figure out how to put those if ever there was a time that our community needed us to step up. And, and I would just remember that being, you know, that, that kind of turning point, we have to figure out um, how to use those, you know, our, our staff and our resources. Mm-hmm. So how did you begin to do that? I mean, I know that you said it felt like chaos. I guess from someone who wasn't in the area, you guys seem like you are so systematic <laughs> in your recovery. And it's so quick. I mean, the fact that you guys have, have addressed the need so quickly and so methodically. How how are you able to do that? Is it because you work together with Bahi to, with each other? How did you do that? First, he and staff hit, uh, staff hit on this was we both have good staff, and um, you know I was stranded, I was out of pocket, and um, my construction supervisor he actually worked with the county to identify some projects that had to happen immediately. Like we had single wide trailers blocking bridges. And again, you know, we had the, the access to, to, to get that taken care of. Um, and so you have good staff that just jumped in um, and did what, that helped a lot. Um, you know, and then it just really is about, um, you know, I think commitment. Um, we did not plan, like we ended up being the volunteer host for Perry County. Um, we didn't plan on that. We were part, we were having some conversations with county leaders. They thought they had a, a VOAD, a volunteer organization active in disaster that was going to come in and coordinate volunteers. And we were like, great, we can do what we do. Um, and that fell apart. It, it wasn't going to work out. And, um, my organization, we do host volunteers. And so we know how to do it. And so we literally called all the carpenters in at noon one day and gave them a crash course and mucking out, that was the Tuesday after the flood. No, the Monday after the flood. So like four days after the flood, we're teaching how to muck out houses. And on Tuesday, we were hosting volunteers who, I mean, because people just were coming out of the woodwork. And I think we landed up hosting over 700 volunteers um, and did something like 3,500 hours of volunteer work just um, because somebody had to do it and we had that, mm-hmm. we could do it. I, I think one of the lessons we learned, we, we had a lot of conversations about what are we not going to do? Mm. Because in the midst of the disaster, everything needs to be done now. Uh, but the hard thing to say is, no, we're not going to do that. Because there's a need there. Right. But is, is that something to do? So we, we, we talked a lot about the parameters of things that we could do um, and the things that we would not do. And just as an example, one of the things that we decided not to do would be like a distribution center mm-hmm. of physical goods. We're, that's, we're not good at that. I know we're not. Um, and others are. 
Uh, we had opportunity to, everybody wanted you to do a lot of different things, but we that was one of the things that we said, we are not even going to touch it. We'll let other people do that and we'll focus on these things. One of the things that we, we did do uh, was shortly thereafter dealing with FEMA. FEMA is a system designed to be appealed. So you had a maximum amount of benefits you could get if you're a flood victim, but they, they rarely offer families the full amount and you need to appeal that. But to appeal, you need a credential contractor to give an estimate for the family to get that. And that's, that's one of the things that we thought we could bring value in this disaster by doing this. And you're doing that while people are, are doing some other work <laughs> And, you know, there's a sense of guilt, you know, we, you know, we're not doing that, but we're doing this and this is what we're doing. So, so there's, a, there's a lot of choices uh, that need to be made, made. And I think all those choices are some of the weariness of a disaster. It's a yeah. constant, steady, you know, decision. All we do is make decisions, decisions, yeah. and, and sometimes really bad decisions. We <laughs> make decisions. You guys both have talked about how you had great staff and also the scope of work. Has your staff grown since since the <laughs> disaster? Yes, we uh, we were at about thirty, and we're over fifty now. Goodness. And still need to hire another. Well, I mean, we set the goal of basically doubling our production, and if you're going to do twice as much, you really need twice as many people. I mean, you'll get some economies at scale, but essentially twice as many. Yeah. So. Pre-flood, post-flood, splitting time in two. Pre-flood, <laughs> you know, we were building three to five homes a year with six to eight construction staff. And like post-flood, since the flood, we've completed 13 new homes and have 19 people in the staff um, and have done a lot of other things. The exponential mm -hmm. demand and the need for work to be done. Um, has grown a lot. I think in, in some ways, I th one of the things Scott said that resonates, we're talking about uh, the difficulty of the last year. And he said, it's like one giant stress test on an organization and a stress test that brings up that your weaknesses come forward. Um, and they really do. Um, our, our staff in the last year, I think our staffs in the last year have given 125% and that's not cliche. Everybody is doing more than what they're able to do. Um, and we continue to do that, recognizing that there's some holes, seeing the need to fill them, but with that comes capacity and the need for funds and planning and, and all that kind of stuff. It's just, it's a, it's a heavy list, lift and it is a, a stress test. It's a good way to think about it. And is that pace sustainable? I mean, because if you're doubling your production, if you're trying to meet this need, is that sustainable over the next couple of years? Because like you said, it is a, it is so stressful and you know there is such a need. Are you able to continue this frenetic pace? If we're able to hire the staff, I mean, if the funding is there, not just to buy the two by four that somebody needs to fix their house, but the and not just the carpenter to put the two by four in, but the person who pushes the paperwork before you get to put the two by four in and the person who pushes the paperwork on the back end. If the money's there to hire the staff we really need, then I think as long as, I mean, I think it is sustainable. Mm -hmm. What scares me is, I mean, we're, we both, we're, we're kind of think about double. You're, you're closer to tripling, I think. Um, but I don't think we can do that again. And even at the rates we're, we're building now, it's kind of a drop in the bucket. Um, I guess that's a bad, <laughs> lots of bad analogies in a flood. Um, but I mean, you know, the, the need, the 9,000 homes um, is, is so great um, that I, I feel like we're going to have to do some additional innovation to figure out what the next variation is. You know, because you can, we were building houses a certain way. And, and, and processing paper a certain way and everything. Yeah. And, and I feel like we've kind of accelerated that almost. I mean, we'll get a little bit better. There's going to be improvement, every, but we're not going to be able to go from 20 to 40 to 80 homes using what we, the way we currently do it. So we're going to have to figure out what's that next. Um, I mean, one of the big changes for us um, from pre-flood, we had to pre-sell every home. 
now we're able to do you know spec building um and so we've got to it's really not just oh i mean the house will be the same but the process will be really different like we've never been able to pour footer 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 so we've got to rethink kind of think our some of our delivery structure um yeah i, I think um about the sustainability i think some of it comes down to dollars um, I think if the relief stage of the disaster were to continue on and on and on, it would not be sustainable for us. Um, the chaos would get to us. But when it comes to building, building is really project management. And you could put a handle on project management and kind of organize it and, and think about how that is to be done. It's completely different than the first six to eight months. So, so in that... Um, I think I think one of the things that we focused on um, too is is hiring people, but also like what kind of systems do we need to change within the organization that'll bring efficiencies, not just another staff person per se. So we changed the way we have done our estimates. We put in place a software program that would track our our people that we're working for from the time they contact homes until the time it's a finished product. And those are efficiencies that have um, done away with a need for a certain number of hours from staff, which we, we've seen real um, and then In terms of funding, do you think the Rural Housing Trust Fund or will assist you? Do you think the Team Kentucky uh, Flood Relief Funds will assist you, or do you think you'll need more private dollars? Will they all work together? Hopefully they're all work together. I mean, um, you know, Team East Kentucky was some of the earlier money we were able to access. Um, you know, the, the first pot of money I think both Seth and I really tapped into was the foundation of App for Appalachia, Kentucky. Um, and, and a little bit from Fahi, we all got together um, and, and started the housing can't wait, um, which, which is how we got the first 16 houses um, going. And then Team East Kentucky came in right on the hills of that and, you know, was really able, um, you know, because part of what you need is not just money today, but you also, if you're going to be hiring staff and buying trucks and buying new equipment, you need to know more money's coming. So it's been great to know that's there. Um, I think the what, but the, you know, Team Kentucky, part of the transaction they have with their donors is that it's 100% going to a flood survivor, which is great. And, and I understand why that's important when you're fundraising. Um, but some money has to go again to the person who's going to push the paper, um, or put the gas in the, the truck to, you know, those things that aren't really, so the right money, I think, um, I'm hopeful with the trust fund, um, um, it, that um, you know, the big dollars that are out there is, will be the CDBGDR dollars that are, we're probably still six months away from being being able to apply for. Um, KHC, I know, is 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 very committed to getting that money on the street as quickly as possible. Um, so we're excited about that because I think we're both kind of reaching the limit of the money we have in hand, and you, we need that next round of okay, we can do another twenty or thirty units yeah and i think uh, to to add on to what scott said or to agree and say amen <laughs> you know it's when you when you um, increase your production um, increase your staff there's such a need for capital investments within the organization you know equipment that you need um, trucks that you need tools that you need it adds up to be a lot of money um, and, and for some ways, we need to be able to pay for that. So far, so good. But um, to, to continue on, those things need to follow suit as well. I can't even imagine. I mean, if your machinery was used to building three to five homes, and now it's building yeah. 15 homes in yeah. a short period of time. Yeah. I also was going to ask you, how how did you identify the, the homeowners? How did you... Um, locate the people that you were going to build the homes for. Did you, did they, was there an application process or how did that work? Yeah, I think um, the, the way I would think about that is be, because we were already a known uh, housing organization, a, a, a key member in our community doing this type of work, I think it was one of the first places people would look. We certainly didn't have to advertise. Yeah. 
Um, and I think uh, the gravitation from local leadership, uh, from community folks was like to point to our organizations and perhaps we weren't as prepared for that as what we should have been to handle the onslaught. We did not have to go out recruiting people to come. They came through the front door often and all the time and, and, and are still doing so as people exhaust their options um, and thought they could do it on their own but realize they, they're falling short. They're coming to us still yet. So. Yeah, and I think one of the skill sets we had was people who knew how to talk to people who had housing issues. Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and even though pre-flood they may not have been disaster-related, they were often crisis situations. And so, like, I know the, the um, Perry County Fiscal Court had taken in um, something like 250 names that they had people had called and said, I need help, and they just written down. And so my staff called all of those people, and we were actually the utilizing a, a software system called Crisis Cleanup, which is really about cleanup from crisis or muckouts and not really long-term, but it was a good launching pad. Um, and then we've been real active in the long-term recovery committees, um, and, and that's another place that we found. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, you know, when the news does the story on you broke ground on your first new home um, in Knott County, you get a lot of calls from Knott County the next day, and then it happens in Breathitt County, and you get a lot of calls in Breathitt County, so... Um, that actually, that hasn't been the problem. You know, floods, I think, are especially nefarious. Like we, like I said, we've dealt with ice storms and wind storms. You know, and there's not a wind storm plane. There's not an ice storm plane. Um, and, and so when you're dealing with that sort of an event, you can really focus on getting people back in their house. The problem with a flood, and we learned this because we dealt with the 21 flood in Breathitt County, and then a lot of those same people and a lot of the people we had helped and the other agencies had helped got flooded again. So there is a, there is a, when someone's in the flood, in a flood prone area, because the floodplain maps are inadequate, when someone's in a flood prone area, you really have to ask yourself, what's the best long-term solution? And there's often a real tension between um, what's the quickest way to help someone and what's the best long-term and so we're still struggling with that. Um, Seth said about, you know, one of the important things you decide is what you're not going to do. And so, you know, we made the very hard decision that if someone's likely to have significant water in their house again, we want to help relocate them, not put them back in harm's way. Um, and so we're still struggling with that and, and what that means and the inadequate floodplain maps. And then um, particularly for us in Breathitt County, and I think it's true in Letcher, um, if you're relocating someone, you need land mm -hmm. that doesn't flood, and, and that's a real struggle. Yeah. Um, we, we found some in Perry. We found some in Knott. Um, the governor has found the high ground communities. I think there's one in Perry and one in Knott. Um, but we don't have that in Breathitt. I'm not sure of the status of Letcher. It's in discussion. Yeah. In, in central Appalachia... Um, low-income, poor folk, they own their house. A high percentage of people own their homes. Maybe they ain't much, but they own them, and it's a roof over their head, over their heads, over their families. Um, a lot of those homes aren't there anymore. They got taken away. So what do you do with a family that is super low-income, had a place to live, but even if you build them a new home, they're not going to be able to afford the insurance and taxes of that new home. That's a big problem. That's a problem. Th those are the situations that are hard to know. Uh, and, and there's not easy answers to it, but we see it a lot and we don't know how to help um, those families. I think another challenge ahead is hoping that our communities have a high bar when it comes to considering uh, people who, who have been resourceful with the help of volunteers, maybe some a load of sheetrock and some insulation and floor coverings have got back into their home, but it's not quite what it was before the flood. Um, but they didn't permit the projects. <laughs> they didn't mitigate the flood risk, and they're still there. Will, will we have a high bar and give these people opportunity to do something different with this federal investment mm. 
that's coming in, giving them an opportunity to move the higher ground and not consider them whole, complete, or repaired. Um, I worry about that. Uh, we, we need to have a high bar, and I'm, sometimes I don't know if we do or not. But the next time a flood comes for that family, uh, there won't even be FEMA assistance because they didn't permit the project, because they didn't mitigate the risk, because they didn't purchase the flood insurance that they couldn't afford anyway. Um, we These families, I, I hope that we can give them an opportunity to do something vastly different. And a lot of those families don't even, haven't even seen a vision cast before them that there might be something different mm. that they can do. And that's one of the things that, you know, a, a challenge before us is casting a vision, hey, we can do something vastly different, but it's hard to cast a vision when those dollars aren't certain yeah. and on the yeah. ground yet. So it, there's a real tension yeah. with how to do that. So those are some of the things that keep me up at night. Yeah, I think your your question, your high bar, I think is spot on. Because in addition to people who've repaired houses, we've seen people who have bought garden sheds or tool sheds yep. and converted them to tiny homes that are right back in the floodplain. And it's not because they want to live in a tiny home in the floodplain. It's because they're resourceful. Yeah. They didn't want to be homeless. Yeah. And, and they, you know, they, they were able to do it. Uh, sure. We've seen people buy new and used trailers and, and set them again back up in the floodplain because that's what they could afford. And so we need, as we go through the recovery process, to, to view those as interim solutions or partial solutions and not as if said, oh, this person's got a used trailer, they're housed, and we're going to go on, um, go on and, yeah. and ignore them. Um, Do you think that people are reluctant to leave the communities where they have always grown up, where they have access to those resources? Or I, is it just that they're trying to get back to... Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think there are some. there is some of that, but I think there is even more of... We didn't even know that would be a possibility. If, you, if you're a low-income person barely getting by, you're not thinking about, oh, I'm going to build a new house up there. It's yeah. not even in the realm of possibilities. Yeah. And we got to be careful about saying, we can do that for you before we know we can do that yeah. for you. Yeah. But we think we can do that for you. So, you know, yeah. that's awkward for I, me. And I, I think that's spot on. The, you know, the number of people that I have talked to who said I absolutely will not leave my property is is not nearly what people think it is. I think people don't can't envision being able to leave the, their property and have something. Um, and I, you know, to me, one of the really instructive stories uh, of the three hundred and some odd houses we had built before the flood, um, we only only one was destroyed. Had a couple that were impacted. One, you know, wasn't in the floodplain. There was a little creek six inches deep behind, you know, 10 feet below their house. And it ran 35 foot deep. And and, and when the house, the, the homeowner told me when the, you know, he watched it. And when the water got up to the peak, it broke free and went down the creek and destroyed their home. And our first conversation with him was, I just want a house. Just, you know, build me back a house right there. Um, but when we actually said, you know, we're going to work with you, we will make this happen. You won't, you know, you won't owe any more money when this is done than you did on the first house. Um, and he could, he could figure out he could afford something else. He said, is there any way I can be on top of, of, of you know, up on the mountain instead of by the creek? I could never feel safe here. Um, and the time, I think, where we really saw it, there's, we've had a, we actually had a, a flood um, back in February that got declared a disaster um, and it hit mainly again Breckett County but the water was up here and, and the, the, the tension is palpable mm -hmm. um, people are scared and, and so I think as if people can really believe that they can afford a lot of folks who are going to be willing to relocate and the number of people who are participating in the buyout programs there is, mm -hmm. um, really the numbers are, are super strong. My last question is, you know, we just had another large storm um, this weekend. And so just what is the sentiment in the counties where you live? You know, you just kind of addressed it. People are, are they still nervous? Are they still worried that it's going to go back to where they just came from or what? So I, I think 
it's kind of it's kind of funny, um, but I think a lot of people take some um, stock in that this was a one in one thousand year flood or one in one thousand chance. So some people really hang their hat on that now. Many others do not. Many others saying, "Hey, this could happen next week." Um, when the when the rain came in February, um, one of the things that uh, the first homeowner that we housed was in a home, and he I had a conversation with him, and he said, "You know, he slept good that night, mm -hmm. but he knows that where he moved from, the house that got flooded, his neighbors." He had talked to them, and they did not sleep good. They were up all night, always going outside with the flashlight and looking. And that kind of traumatic mm. uh, impact um, is is there. Um, I don't think we should. I don't think we should take a lot of confidence in this was an isolated event that could never happen again. Uh, the other thing that's impacted us, at least in Letcher County, we see it, and a lot of people talk about it, are that the streams and the rivers are silted up. Uh, that stream that used to be four feet below the road is now a foot and a half below and doesn't take as much water to come out and, and flood people out. And that's another reality that everybody recognizes. And I don't know if anything will be done about that. That's a lot of environmental impact and everything. But um, th those, yeah. Yeah, I, I think um, I think people are nervous and even people who kind of subscribe to the, this is a once in a lifetime, once in a hundred year or a thousand year are, um, I think they still get nervous when it rains a lot. You, you guys had some real life experience yeah. with that in breath County. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So in the 21 flood, um, you know, the river wasn't up that much cause, but the, a lot of the flash flooding was places flooded that had never flooded. Um, and we heard that, Oh, I, you know, grandma lived here all her life and it's never flooded. Um, and it did. And then when the 21 true flood came, it was, about four foot higher pretty much everywhere. Um, and there, you can tell, um, particularly I think even on some of the community level, like Breathitt County, I think is much more focused on how do we get people relocated than mm -hmm. some of the other communities that are more, that are where Breathitt County was in 21 was how do we get people back in the home? Right. Um, and, and so the, um, I, I think that, um, I mean, hopefully we won't experience anything like this. It's hard for me to imagine that we will have this widespread event. But I mean, if you live in a holler, I mean, all it takes is, is some crazy rain in your holler. You know, it doesn't have to, I mean, that's, if you live along the Mississippi, right, for the Mississippi to flood, it's got to rain a lot somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, if, if you live in a holler, it just takes five or six inches in a, an hour or two and, and you're going to have a flash flood. Is there anything else we should know about the rebuilding effort? How can people support you guys and your work? So, um, I mean, I think we both are using volunteers. We've got our house raising challenge um, that we allow people to sponsor a house and bring volunteers and come in and, and, and dry that house in in a week. Um, we both talked about capacity money, um, you know, and, and uh like I say, I understand why people want to buy the two by four, um, but everything that it takes to get that two by four to the site and um, is it just almost as important. Yeah, I think um, something that I learned uh, from the flood too, um, in every crisis there's opportunities. Um, and there's a lot of opportunities coming out of mm -hmm. the, the, the event. It was tragic. People died. Um, people off lost life and property. Um, but where we are moving forward, there's conversations that are happening in our communities that haven't happened in the last 32 years I've been here. Um, and that's encouraging. Um, and I think if we have a will, we can do things a lot differently. Um, you know, um, one of the things that's on a lot of people's mind, I think, besides the flood, is the increasing cost of energy. And, uh, you know, we're really proud of the, um, the energy efficiency aspect of the work that we're doing. The house, houses that um, are, these organizations are building are, are quality, um, they're very energy efficient. Um, I'll put them up against any home anywhere, uh, you know, in, in the end product. But um, thinking about the energy efficiency opportunities moving forward, 
uh, we're excited about the very next house that we build will be actually a, a net zero energy house for a flood victim who makes less than $800 a month. So essentially they won't have an energy bill other than the base bill. So if we can figure out ways to repeat that and do that often and well, um, I think there's a lot of things that we could do differently moving forward from the flood with lessons learned about uh, the recovery. Yeah, and I think not to forget us. I mean, I think, you know, that's, um, it was interesting because shortly at, relatively shortly after the flood, the hurricane hit Florida. And I mean, you could just, the, the national news just. And the attention span yeah, yeah. of people, just, just uh, squirrel. Yeah. Up there. And, and, you know, there's some big numbers coming. I mean, the CDBG DR funding is 300 million, which it sounds like, oh, um, but, you know, the, the, the amount of money it's going to take to fully recover is um, significantly more than that. So don't get fooled by the big numbers. Um, you know, with 9,000 houses that were damaged, um, probably, I think somewhere between two and 3,000 houses need to be either rebuilt because they were, they're gone or they need to be re relocated because they're at significant risk. Uh, risk. Um, Eric and Rebecca, you mentioned their study earlier, you know, they pegged the, the total cost somewhere between 450 million if we don't relocate very many people to 900 if we re locate, relocate as many as we should. So, I mean, um, it's a staggering number, so don't get fooled by the number. Don't, you know, that's one of the, particularly if you happen to be a legislator, don't think, oh, uh, you know, they got 300 million of federal money. Um, not all of that's going to housing, but don't think, oh, they don't need any yeah. more state money. Before we leave, can you guys just each give us your uh, website so that people can check out the work that you're doing? HDAHome.org. Homesincorporated.org. Well, thank you both so much. This has been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Well, that's a wrap for bringing it home today. We truly hope you've enjoyed our discussion. If you'd like to find out more information about Kentucky Housing Corporation, please feel free to visit www.kyhousing.org. That's www.kyhousing.org. If you'd like more information about this podcast and blog, you can also visit www.bringingithomeky.com. That's www.bringingithomeky.com. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can also email us at communications at kyhousing.org. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you bring it home with us again.